When Jim Bridger was a young man, the entire western half of what's now the United States was, for lack of a better term, a wilderness. A land teeming with bison and ruled by indigenous hunter-gatherer societies. Untamed, untouched, and unsullied. Bridger would join the ranks of Ashley's 100 while still a teenager and, alongside other future legends like Hugh Glass, Jedediah Smith, and James Beckworth, head up the Missouri River in search of beaver. From present-day northern Montana all the way down to the Gulf of California. From the Mississippi on west to the Pacific Ocean, Bridger saw it all, discovering and blazing trails that still bear his name to this day, while at the same time facing off with some of the deadliest warriors who ever strung a bow. Ah, but the shining times wouldn't last forever. By Jim's 35th birthday, the beaver trade done petered out. The West he called home was quickly being overrun by a so-called civilization, and he found himself yet again adapting to a new way of life. Nevertheless, over four decades after first coming West, Bridger was still riding the prairie scouting for the U.S. Army at 64 years of age. This series covers it all. From the rise and decline of the Mountain Men to Fort Bridger, the Utah War, the Donner Party, Jim's time as a guide for rich adventurers and government explorers, all the way up to Red Cloud's War and the Fetterman Massacre. From Ashley's 100 to the 100 in hand, we're taking a look at who Bridger really was as a person, his family, and finally, his legacy. We're going to the marrow of the world on this one, where elk don't know how many legs a horse got, where there ain't no laws for the brave ones or asylums for the crazy ones, and there ain't no priests setting the birds. By God, my name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. James Felix Bridger was born on March 17, 1804 in Richmond, Virginia. His parents, James and Chloe, operated both a farm and an inn, but would move the family west in the year 1812. Not the safest of journeys, as not only was there a war going on with Great Britain, but the area they were headed was still, at that time, considered the frontier. They'd take Daniel Boone's Wilderness Road through the Cumberland Gap across the Appalachians onto the Ohio River, where they would then board a flatboat bound for Illinois Territory. And brother, believe me when I say that the natives of the upper Missouri River Valley weren't too happy with American encroachers. This is at a time when people were still being slaughtered where the city of Chicago would one day stand. You had Black Hawk's War to the north, the Winnebago's were raiding, even the Potawatomi led by an old boy named Mainpock. Nevertheless, the family settled at Six Mile Prairie, just outside of St. Louis. And it's there that young Jim would spend the next decade of his life. Sadly, his mother would pass away in 1816 when James was just 12, his brother a few months later, and then his pops followed them both to the grave the following year, leaving just Jim and his sister. As such, a 13-year-old Bridger went to work on a ferry before being apprenticed to a famous gunsmith named Philip Creamer. Now, oftentimes you'll read that Jim was simply a blacksmith's apprentice, but that is quite the understatement. William Clark, John C. Calhoun, and Andrew Jackson were just some of the notable names who would come to own and love firearms crafted by Philip Creamer. Dude was very well known at the time, and his talents were widely sought after. And it was under his tutelage that Jim would learn the craft as well. In 1817, Creamer, with Jim in tow, would travel 170 miles north to the Potawatomi Reservation, taking care of the tribe's gunsmithing and blacksmithing needs and giving Bridger his first exposure to life among the indigenous. Keep in mind that this was the same tribe his family guarded themselves from when he was a child. 
Now here he was living among them, seeing them as actual human beings with families and unique personalities. I think this experience went a long way into shaping Bridger's view of Native Americans uh, in the years to come, as well as his way of interacting with them. Now, Jim did live with Creamer and his family, but he also spent time with an uncle, his father's brother, in Illinois town, now part of St. Louis. And of course, in February of 1822, a 17-year-old Bridger answered the famous advertisement ran in the Missouri Gazette, looking for 100 enterprising young men to follow the River Missouri to its source and there be employed for one, two, or three years. This was William Henry Ashley's expedition, bound for the western wilderness in search of beaver. According to TrappingToday.com, top quality beaver pelts may get $25 or more this year, 2023, with northern collections likely averaging around $15 to $20. Beaver from most other places will probably continue to average in the $10 to $12 range. Now, I couldn't find out how much a pelt was worth in 1822, but by 1837, they'd get you about two bucks, which is the equivalent of over $60 in today's money. So depending on quality, you're looking at beaver plues being worth somewhere between three to six times as much as they are nowadays. And lest you think that this doesn't amount to much, well, America's first millionaire built his fortune on beaver, a guy named John Jacob Astor. By the way, you're going to hear me use the phrases pelts and plues interchangeably during this series. A pelt is just another way of saying animal skin, fur included. Likewise with plu, a French bastardization that the trappers would use to describe the beaver skin or pelt. This is what they harvested from the beaver that they trapped. But why? What made beaver so valuable? It largely had to do with fashion, believe it or not. Beaver felt top hats were all the rage over in Europe, and as the trend found its way over to the United States, the demand went through the roof. Important to note that the fur trade did not begin with Jim Bridger and Ashley's 100. It had already been going on for a good two centuries, and this episode or series is not meant to be a definitive history of the North American fur trade. I'm just giving you a quick rundown just for a little context. Also, for you longtime listeners, you're going to have a little deja vu throughout this series, especially if you've listened to what I've done on Hugh Glass or Kit Carson. I do plan on covering more of these mountain men in the future, guys like Jed Smith and Jim Beckworth and Joseph Walker. And I don't want to have to rehash the same old information each and every time. I know that could potentially be kind of boring. So just bear with me once more and going forward for future topics, I'll use this episode or series as sort of a reference for new listeners. Cool? Cool. Now the fur trade in North America really began in the early 1600s with the French in Newfoundland, Canada. They exchanged goods with Native Americans for pelts and the practice soon spread. By the turn of the 19th century, the French-Canadian presence was heavy from the Great Lakes to the Canadian prairies and even down to the Dakotas. Even the Russians got involved, exporting an average of 60,000 pelts a year from the Alaskan coast. The Louisiana Purchase in 1803 and the Lewis and Clark Expedition that followed opened up even more territory for the fur trade. By 1808, Andrew Henry established a post on the Three Forks of the Missouri, present-day Montana, but was soon driven away by the Blackfeet. He relocated his men near present-day St. Anthony, Idaho, for a short time, before heading back east and becoming preoccupied with the War of 1812. Once hostilities ceased, Ashley and Henry formed what would become known as the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, and placed that famous ad in the Missouri Gazette. So yeah, the fur trade was already well-established long before 1822. You know, John Coulter of the Lewis and Clark Expedition stayed out west, trapping beaver in the present-day states of Montana and Idaho. 
Then you had Andrew Henry, even Manuel Lisa had his trading post on the mouth of the Bighorn by 1810. You could accurately say that what we consider the Mountain Man era really began with the Lewis and Clark expedition. I think that's technically true. I would argue, however, that it was kicked into overdrive with Ashley's 100 and the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. This was like a graduating class of who's who when it comes to famous frontiersmen. Among those who answered Ashley's advertisement were Hugh Glass, Jedediah Smith, William Sublett, Jim Beckworth, Ed Rose, Broken Hand Fitzpatrick, Davy Jackson, and yes, our very own teenage Jim Bridger. John Coulter may have been the original OG mountain man, but Ashley's 100 were about to define an entire era. By the way, they did not all head up the Missouri River in one bunch. There were three separate killboats that departed St. Louis on three separate occasions. Andrew Henry led the first group, including Jim Bridger, as they pushed off on April 3rd, 1822, their boat piloted by the notorious Mike Fink. And if you're not familiar with Mike Fink, he was already a very well-known figure on the river who's often referred to as the king of the killboatmen, a tough brawler and heavy drinker who Davy Crockett once allegedly described as part horse and part alligator Fink would have already been about 50 years of age at this time. Now, full disclosure, I feel like I'm duty-bound to point out that we can't prove the Mike Fink who went upriver with Henry and Bridger was the same famous Mike Fink riverboat captain. Hugh Glass, who was just in his early 40s, was known as Old Hugh, yet nobody seems to have made any remarks on Fink's even more advanced age. Then again, if it wasn't the riverboat Mike Fink, then that would be one hell of a coincidence. I mean, what are the odds there just so happened to be another hard-fighting, heavy-drinking killboat captain with the balls to head into the mostly unknown? Killboats, by the way, predated steamboats. And since these men were traveling upriver and going against the current, they powered these vessels with pure muscle. Men on both sides would walk from one end to the other, dropping long poles in the water until hitting the river bottom, and then heave against the poles over and over and over. Grueling work that, according to one account, would see each man take more than four million steps from bow to stern on their way to the Yellowstone. At other times, if conditions called for it, they waded in the water or along the banks pulling the boat by a long tow rope. Now, not everybody was on the boat. You also had a land party traveling parallel to the river. Each evening, the two groups would reunite, and each morning, they'd resume their labor. By mid-July 1822, they reached present-day South Dakota, where they fell on lean times. Game was scarce, and it was considered a lucky day if they happened upon a stray dog to roast. As a result, despite being deep in hostile territory and a long ways from civilization, there were a few desertions. Still, Bridger and the others pushed on, past the lands of the Arikara and Mandan, and into the domain of the Assiniboine, who, as luck would have it, stole 25 horses from the expedition just as a way of saying hello. Horses that the men would need to take them into the mountains once they left the river. Finally, by August, they reached their destination, the confluence of the Missouri and Yellowstone Rivers, not far from present-day Buford, North Dakota, and just a stone's throw away from the present-day border with Montana. It was there that the men would erect Fort Henry, as they awaited Ashley and the others to join them. Once situated, it was time to go to work, and Ashley split the men into three groups. Walt would stay at Fort Henry and literally hold down the fort, while at the same time trading with any local tribes bringing in pelts. The other two groups, one led by Ashley and the other by a large Danish man called Weber, spelled Weber, but I believe it's pronounced Weber, would head out and set their own traps. I do not know which of these three Bridger was assigned to, but I'm next to certain that Jim brought in his first beaver plu that very season. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to make a confession. 
I have never personally engaged in any type of fur trapping. I will try my best to describe the beaver trapping process that these men of the expedition would have employed, as I understand it. But since I know I've got a few trappers listening right now, please feel free to email me with any corrections. WildWestExtra.com and hit that contact button. As a company man, Bridger would have to draw traps out from the clerk against his own account, for likely double what they would cost in St. Louis. He'd then head out and be on the lookout for beaver sign. Obviously, you have beaver dams, right? But it's the little things that Jim would soon learn to notice, like which beaver dams had fresh mud. Then you had your beaver slides where the rodents would come in and out of the water. If it was winter, and much of the time it was because that's when the beaver fur is at its thickest and most valuable, Bridger would search for where the ice was broken up, indicating fresh activity. He'd use all these clues to decide the most likely path of the beaver and then place his set or traps. Bridger would have to wade into the freezing water and use a knife to cut a level bed in the bank about a half a foot or so under the surface, sort of a shelf to set his trap. A trap he'd bait with something called castor, an oil harvested from the sack near the beaver's muffler. The trap itself would be attached to a chain that he would then secure into the bed of the stream with a stake. I do not know how many traps Jim would have had at his disposal, nor do I know how often he'd catch beaver in relation to how many traps he'd set out but I have read that some of these trappers would check their sets twice a day. Now these traps in question would have been made of iron, double-springed with two jaws that would slam shut if anything triggered the pan. They weighed anywhere between 6 to 8 pounds, and I imagine your average fur trapper would maybe carry 6 to 10 of them on his person. As with any job, with time came experience and knowledge. Those first couple of winters out west, Bridger would have picked up quickly on all the little tricks of the trade. He would also learn a thing or two about keeping his scalp, but we'll get to that soon enough. Once Jim collected his traps and the dead beavers, it was time to skin them and flesh them. At this point, the hide would then be stretched onto a circular hoop, usually made out of willow, and let dry. Now all this, of course, would be done back at camp, and once accomplished, the clerk would credit Jim for his half of the value of the furs to pay off any of the company debt that he had thus far accumulated in the way of traps and supplies, which I guess is how they get you. And on and on it went, day in, day out. As much as we romanticize these mountain men, they were first and foremost out there to trap beaver. They had a job to do, and I'm pretty sure Ashley didn't offer paid time off sick days or time and a half after 40 hours. Now just to set the scene a little more, I think it's beneficial to look at how isolated these men would have been from what they considered civilization. At this time in 1822, there was essentially nothing west of St. Louis, Missouri. I mean, sure, you had the Spanish and Mexican settlements down in Texas and New Mexico and over in California. You had the French Canadians up in the Great White North, and you even had a few Brits on the West Coast and present-day Oregon. But the vast interior of what's now the United States, okay, the entire area is consistent of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Colorado, North Dakota, South Dakota, damn near all of Washington and Oregon. There was nothing. And by nothing, I mean no towns, no forts, no stores, no churches or schools or restaurants. They simply did not exist. Not to say that the land wasn't populated. It was, by hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples. And these people had their own special cultures, with religion and artwork and traditions. Rich cultures. I'm not trying to denigrate them or say that they weren't a civilization or make them appear less than. But for the American fur trappers, this was unlike anything they had ever encountered. Okay, There was no readily available access to manufactured goods or medical care or anything like that. To quote author Jerry Insler, 
These men had no shelter other than what they built, no food except what they hunted, and no protection except what they could provide themselves. They'd have to adapt and become like their new indigenous neighbors if they had any hopes of acclimating to this wild new land. And believe it or not, despite landing on starving times on their way there, that first winter of 1823, they would eat pretty well. And you better believe they were eating the majority of what they killed, not just what we nowadays consider the choicest cuts. These men dined on it all, the hearts, livers, tongues, the hump fat from the buffalo, even the marrow. One fur trapper's specialty was to turn the buffalo intestines inside out and add in tiny bits of organ meat. This was about as close to a carnivore diet as you could get. I can't speak to the specifics of Bridger and his companions, but during parts of the Lewis and Clark expedition, not far from this same area, they were ingesting an average of 9 pounds of meat per day per man, so around 6,000 calories, and still going to bed hungry. Part of this was due to all that lean meat, you know, hence the supplementing with the liver and heart and as much fat as they could get their hands on. Also, the organ meat, whether they knew it or not, helped to ward off scurvy. You may have heard that the old mountain men consider beaver tail to be a delicacy. This is true, but once again, this points to their diet of lean meat coupled with a ton of physical exertion more than it does the culinary delights of beaver tail. It's pretty much just all fat and gristle, but that's exactly what these men were craving. The good times wouldn't last forever, though. As you'll soon hear throughout the majority of this series, the great nemesis of the Rocky Mountain fur trappers were the Blackfeet powerful nation that, in their heyday, controlled a vast swath of territory. I'm talking like from present-day Edmonton, Alberta, down to Yellowstone, from Glacier National Park in northwestern Montana, all the way east, damn near to the Black Hills of South Dakota. This is the tribe that attacked John Coulter and made him do his famous run for his life back in 1808. And it's the same folks who took out some of Henry's men in the Three Forks that following year. Likewise with these new uninvited guests. The Blackfeet would strike hard killing four of Henry's men in the spring of 1823. And if such formidable warriors weren't enough to worry about, some of the trappers took to fighting one another. Mike Fink, the killboat captain, killed a man named Carpenter as the two were drunkenly shooting cups of whiskey off each other's heads. In turn, one of Carpenter's buddies, Talbot, unloaded his pistols into Fink, killing him. As for Talbot, he would soon drown while crossing the Teton River. And then disaster really struck. In June of 1823, Ashley sent a contingent of men to trade with the Arikara for desperately needed horses. Not a great idea, as the Arikara were all kinds of riled up and for a myriad of reasons. First of all, they relied heavily on trade. With Ashley's men trapping beaver all on their own, it sort of cut the Arikara out as the middlemen. Then there was the trading post that they were promised but never received, thus depriving them of easily obtaining manufactured goods, the sort of stuff that their enemies had access to. And on top of all of that, some members of the Missouri Fur, a rival trapping company, had recently killed Tuarikara. They were plumb fed up and decided to take their anger out on Ashley's men. Now, I spoke more in depth about this on the episode I did on Hugh Glass, but I'll briefly cover it again now. Ashley was initially able to trade for 19 horses, and that evening he split his party in two. One group, led by Jedediah Smith, stayed on shore to camp out with the newly acquired mounts, with plans to drive the small herd overland to Fort Henry the next day. Ashley and the rest of the men stayed on the kill boat about 30 yards from the bank, likewise planning to pull it back to the fort. Both parties would have to wait for a fierce windstorm to die down before they could depart, and this delay would prove to be disastrous. 
Two of the men on shore, Edward Rose and Aaron Stevens, got that peculiar feeling that us men are prone to get from time to time and decided to stroll on over to the Arikara camp looking to, well, partake in that oldest profession known to man, if you know what I mean. And in the process, Stevens went and got himself killed. Around midnight that night, some Arikara swam to the kill boat and tried to get inside the cabin, forcing Ashley to chase them off with a pistol. At about that same time, on shore, Rose comes running back to camp, hollering up a storm about Stevens. After some debate, the men on the bank decided just to stay put and wait till first light to make a move. Obviously, they were on high alert. Right at the ass crack of dawn, the Arikara approached and said that they would trade him Stevens' body for one horse. The horse was provided, and a few minutes later, the Arikara claimed that there was not enough of Stevens left to return. Yikes. At this point, the fight was on as both sides started trading fire a battle you can see dramatized in the opening scene of 2015's The Revenant. Just in case you were wondering why they were hollering to get to the boat, well, now you know. All total, 14 trappers would be killed and around 10 wounded before they could make their escape. Without the damn horses, by the way, and minus a boat and over 30 guns. Now, Jim Bridger was not present for this fight. But when Jed Smith hauled ass up to Fort Henry for reinforcements, Jim was one of the men who returned with him and he would take part in the short Arikara War that followed. But before we get into that real quick, let me tell you about a new podcast from my friend David Lose, To Be a Rebel. Ready to take a step outside the frontier and into the world of rebels throughout all of history? Well, you're in luck. To Be a Rebel explores the lives of some of the most iconic and lesser-known rebels from all over the world and throughout time. From political activists like Ida Wells to military leaders like Mulan, even spiritual and cultural figures like Martin Luther King Jr. and Jimi Hendrix, David Lose covers it all, keeping true to the historical accuracy while at the same time bringing these stories to life through captivating storytelling and high-quality sound design. Listen, you want to stay at home and conform? That's fine. But you want to be a real rebel like Jim Bridger? Give to Be a Rebel a listen. Available right now wherever you are currently listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Seriously, check it out. You're going to love it. To be a rebel. This episode is also brought to you by... All right. Welcome back. As Bridger and the Reaction Force were headed down river, Ashley sent the wounded back to St. Louis along with a bunch of letters seeking help. To that end, the commander of Fort Atkinson, Colonel Henry Leavenworth, soon came running with 230 men of the 6th U.S. Infantry. These soldiers, the first ever to be deployed against hostile Native Americans west of the Mississippi, were joined by 50 volunteers from the Missouri Fur Company, the damn scoundrels that started this whole mess, 80 of Ashley's men, and 500 mounted Lakota warriors, bringing their ranks to damn near 900. They were armed and headed straight for the Arikara, looking to set things right. It turned out a bit anticlimactic, however. After a few brief skirmishes, Leavenworth called a ceasefire and parlayed with the Arikara leaders. As a treaty was being negotiated, the Lakota quit in disgust and went back home. After all, they didn't come all that way just to sit around and flap their gums. Later that night, the Arikara left as well, slipping out under the cover of darkness. The fur trappers, still not satisfied, went into the abandoned village and burned it to the ground, ensuring further bloodshed and revenge killings in the years that followed, as well as making the Missouri no longer a safe or viable travel option. As a result, the trappers would be forced to leave the river and head overland to access the Rockies. One group, once again led by Jed Smith, would head immediately towards the land of the Opsaluka, Crow Country. The other, piloted by Andrew Henry, would return to the fort and shut it down before linking up with Smith. 
We don't know for sure which group Bridger was part of, but as this was when the whole Hugh Glass Bear Mullen incident occurred, many believe Bridger was a member of Ashley's team. And if you don't know who Hugh Glass is, oh boy, are you in for a treat. Do yourself a favor and give that episode I did on Hugh a listen. Link in the show notes. Or just Google the guy. It's one hell of a tell. Uh, the movie The Revenant was based on Glass, but you know how that goes. Hollywood is Hollywood, right? Once again, we've got a bit of overlap here, so I'm not going to rehash the incident in full, but the quick and dirty of it is that Glass was horribly mauled by a mama grizzly. By the time his fellow trappers got to him, he was still alive, but barely. They treated Hugh's wounds as best they could and made him as comfortable as possible as they waited for him to give up the ghost. Only thing is, Glass was taking his own sweet time and dying. Finally, Henry made an executive decision. He'd leave two men with the dying glass with orders to bury him as soon as he expired, and then come skedaddling to join up with the others. The two trappers left were a guy named John Fitzgerald and presumably our very own Jim Bridger. They waited a few days, glass still didn't die, so the pair abandoned their wounded compadre and made off with his rifle and other supplies, while the getting was still good. Now granted, they truly believed that Hugh was going to die no matter what. I mean, the dude was horribly mangled. But still, they did leave him to die alone, and without a burial. Well, the tough old Hugh Glass just kept on breathing. He began to crawl at first, and then stumble, and then walk. Naked, emaciated, unarmed, and covered in maggots, Glass made his way on foot 250 miles to Fort Kiowa, present-day southern South Dakota. Unlike in the movie The Revenant, Glass was not looking for revenge, but he was dead set on getting that prize rifle back, which he did. He also had a come-to-Jesus meeting with young Bridger, or so the story goes, but ultimately forgave him for his youth and because he knew Jim was very hesitant to leave him behind, unlike that son-of-a-bitch Fitzgerald. The big question among historians is whether or not this was really our Jim Bridger. And honestly, I'm no historian or anything, but I'm torn on this one as well. On one hand, the only evidence seems to hinge on what an aspiring author by the name of Edmund Flagg wrote some 16 years after the fact. He claimed that a youth of 17 named Bridges, not Bridger, Bridges, was who stayed back with Fitzgerald. Of course, this could simply be a spelling error, but Flagg also got many other facts wrong in regard to Glass's ordeal. Furthermore, researchers have discovered at least seven men named Bridges working on or around the Missouri at the same time. That said, a whopping eight decades after the bear attack, former steamboat pilot Joseph Labarge said that he remembered a, quote, tradition that Jim Bridger was the young deserter, end quote. Labarge's biographer, however, discounted this allegation, writing, quote, There is no other proof of it than this intangible tradition. Who the young man was is not known, end quote. And the only record of Bridger addressing the issue that I'm aware of comes from James Stevenson, a scientist with a geological survey who spent a good deal of time with Jim in the late 1850s. When asked about it, Stevenson wrote, quote, Bridger told me the story of your glass, but there was no desertion, end quote. And make of that what you will. As far as I'm concerned, the verdict is still out. I feel like if it was Jim Bridger, then there would have been more of a mention of it from other famous trappers who were around during that same time. Then again, it's always possible that they kept their mouths shut out of respect. Bridger was certainly not shunned after Hugh Glass's mauling, nor did his alleged role in the desertion seem to hurt his reputation among the boys. Once Andrew Henry and the others linked up with Smith and his party, they'd build a new Fort Henry in present-day Montana, where the Yellowstone and Bighorn Rivers meet. And luckily for them, their new neighbors, the Crow, were much more hospitable than the Blackfeet and Arikara. 
Not only would the trappers obtain desperately needed horses from the Upsalaga, but they would also winter with them, using the Crow Village as sort of a base of operations as they fanned out in search of beaver. Even traveling as far away as the Wind River Valley in present-day Wyoming, where they would air quotes discover the South Pass. And I say air quotes because, let's face it, when we're talking about the fur trappers and their discoveries, the stuff they were finding had already been well known to the indigenous for centuries. Hell was the crow who told them about the South Pass. Usually what we mean, or I guess what I mean, in the context of U.S. history when we're talking about somebody discovering something, we're really saying the first white Americans or Europeans to see or utilize a certain location or landmark. And in this case, that's still incorrect because Scottish-born Canadian fur trapper Robert Stewart took the same pass a dozen years prior. When it comes to the South Pass, however, it would be Ashley and his men that were successful in getting it on the map. Our very own Jim Bridger would cross the pass sometime towards the end of winter under the leadership of John Weaver and trap beaver along the Green River of what's now southwestern Wyoming, which at that time belonged to Mexico. Of course, nobody told that to the Shoshone. They were willing to trade with the fur men for guns and other goods, but they also made no qualms in taking what they wanted by force, killing at least 13 trappers in the months to follow. And just to show you how young and somewhat inexperienced Jim still was at this time, he would get docked a large chunk of his pay that winter for killing a company mule. He was in camp one night, he heard a noise, thought he saw eyes flashing, and he raised his rifle and pulled the trigger. Whoops! Now this would be Bridger's second winter away from so-called civilization. The exposed skin on his face and hands would be burnt to a dark brown, his hair uncut, and his beard, well, he likely didn't have a beard. And neither did any of his companions. I know when we think of the Rocky Mountain fur trappers, we automatically think about, you know, a bearded Jeremiah Johnson lookalike. But the fact was, Ashley had strict rules against facial hair. He had this weird idea that the natives wouldn't trust or trade with anybody that wasn't clean shaven. Now, this rule didn't apply to free trappers and would eventually be relaxed for Ashley's men as well. But early on in 1822 and 23, it's very likely that all these guys would have been sans beards. Any vestige of city clothes that Bridger once owned would have been long gone, however. His attire now, and for many years to come, would largely mirror that of the Native Americans he'd lived amongst. Moccasins and long buckskin shirts, leather leggings, and buffalo robes replaced calico shirts and woolen pants. To be confused with an Indian was about the highest praise you could have paid one of these men. Don't get it twisted, though. There was not a universal or official uniform when it came to the mountain men. Each fur trapper had their own unique sense of swag, you know, their own fashion sense, one that was influenced by a variety of different cultures. Unfortunately, we did not have cameras available in the 1820s to document these outfits, but you can get a decent idea by checking out the paintings of Alfred Jacob Miller. The artist would travel west in the late 1830s and attend at least one of the annual fur trapping rendezvous, where he captured their likeness on canvas. Both old Bill Williams and Joseph Walker were painted dressed in heavily fringed buckskin from noggin to hill, with Williams wearing beaded moccasins and some sort of leather cap adorned with what appears to be colorful feathers. Did these guys ever don store-bought clothes? Yes, of course. At least when available. If you've ever seen any photos of Bridger as an older man, he looks much more like an unassuming farmer than anything else. But in those early years, especially before the annual rendezvous began, it was next to certain that Jim, other than maybe a Hudson's Bay blanket or a colored sash, would have been clad entirely in animal skins. He would have also carried a possible's bag, sort of like a satchel, in which he kept all the little things he needed in day-to-day -day operations. 
sort of a mountain man version of a modern day EDC. This is where he'd keep his flint and steel, lead balls, his patch, maybe his powder and something to measure the powder with. Maybe a powder horn was also on his person. Tobacco if he had any. Bridger would have had a knife on him for sure, but it weren't no Bowie knife. The most popular blade among the fur trappers by far was just your average run-of-the-mill butcher knife. Maybe you or somebody you know has an old Hickory brand butcher knife in the kitchen. I know I've got a couple myself. This is a great example of what Bridger would have carried his first 10 plus years out west. Now later on, the Green River knives would become extremely popular on the frontier, but not until the 1840s. There's also a very good chance that Jim would have had a tomahawk. As far as other tools that could also be used as weapons, he and the rest of Ashley's fur trappers would have been carrying flintlock rifles, at least in the early 1820s. Matter of fact, General Ashley had commissioned the Hawken brothers in St. Louis, Jacob and Samuel, to custom build rifles for his men. Rifles sometimes now referred to as Super Hawkins. Not a whole lot of details available on these bad boys other than they had 42-inch long barrels and they probably shot a 69 caliber ball. As to other rifles utilized by the fur trappers in the 1820s, the good old Kentucky Long Rifle reigned supreme. Also known as the Pennsylvania Rifle, these flintlocks generally shot between a mid-30 to 45 caliber ball. And speaking of the Hawkins brothers, their famous Hawkins rifle was also very popular among the mountain men, as shown in the movie Jeremiah Johnson. Speaking of Jeremiah, a very cool example of a Hawkins rifle can be found in the Cody, Wyoming Firearms Museum. They have what's claimed to be Liver Eaton Johnson's 56 caliber Hawkins. It's much shorter than a Kentucky rifle and with a heavier barrel and larger caliber. They also have a pistol that allegedly once belonged to Jedediah Smith. Not sure about the providence of these claims, but it is of the type that Bridger would have carried early on. An English-made flintlock with a 62 caliber bore. Keep in mind that these were all black powder one-shot firearms. There were no lever-action Winchester or Henry rifles back in the Mountain Man days. Nor did the trappers have revolvers. Aside from a double-barreled shotgun, which they did have, everything else was single-shot. And that rifle didn't stay in no scabbard either. You rode with it in front of you, resting across your saddle. Hopefully you had a brace of pistols as well, but that's only three shots and you better be able to reload really damn fast or hope you're close enough to put that tomahawk of yours to use. Now all this is purely speculation based on the historical evidence. I did not find anything written in stone that said, hey, this is the exact rifle that Jim Bridger favored. I did find some hinting to the idea that Bridger personally carried a Creamer rifle that he himself helped to build with his mentor, Philip Creamer. And it's said that Jim carried a Hawkins for many a year. In the early 1850s, a business partner of Bridger's gifted him with an engraved 40 caliber half-stock Ogden rifle. Whether or not Jim ever carried this gun on his person or he kept it as a keepsake, I don't know. And later on in this series, I will describe another type of rifle that Bridger was seen carrying on the Great Plains in the early 1860s. So there you go. A reliable gun, a good knife, some powder, lead, tobacco, a half dozen traps, a buckskin jacket, and two big old balls. And brother, I hope you know how to swim because you about to be drowning in beaver. Now, fashion sense and arsenal notwithstanding, Bridger and his companions would continue to ply their trade, harvesting beaver. By the fall and winter of 1824 and 25, they were setting traps on the Bear River, which was proven to be quite the mystery. Seriously, check out the bear on a map if you get a chance. It even looks like a big squiggly question mark. Some of the trappers reckoned it could be the fabled Bonaventura River, rumored to be a water passage to the Pacific. Others disagreed, and it weren't long before wagers were being made. 
Finally, they talked young Bridger, now 20 years of age, into setting off alone and figuring out the bear's course. He did so on horseback, eventually following the river's winding path through the Bear River Canyon before emerging to the side of a great body of water, extending for miles. Dismounting and taking a sip, Jim was surprised to discover that the water was salty, and thus Utah's Great Salt Lake was discovered. Maybe. There was another guy by the name of Etienne Provost, a French-Canadian trapper out of Taos, who was in the same area just a tad bit earlier than Bridger, and he did see the lake from a distance. Now, Jim thought it was the damn Pacific Ocean. Provost, we don't know what he thought. No word on if he knew it was salty or not. Still, though, both men do sort of get dual credit when it comes to the discovery. To which the local Native Americans remarked, Oh, that big lake over there that's salty that we've known about for a thousand years? Discoveries aside, turns out Bridger and his pals weren't alone. And as far as they were concerned, them there mountains weren't big enough for everybody. Especially not a bunch of damn Englishmen and Iroquois from the Hudson's Bay Company. Evidently, the land west of the Great Divide and north of the Arkansas River was jointly claimed by both England and the United States. And the Hudson's Bay men had concocted a plan to kill all beaver along a huge portion of this border, creating what they called a beaver desert, thus stopping the Americans from advancing further west. And if that sounds confusing, let's talk geography for a moment. In 1823, Mexico wasn't the Mexico that exists today. Back then, it also consisted of all of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and parts of Wyoming. Russia owned Alaska, and England had control over the Pacific Northwest. Present-day Washington State, Idaho, and I think most of Oregon. The rest of the land in the interior belonged to the United States via the Louisiana Purchase, and then, of course, you had the regular states and such back east. And yeah, the damnable French up north. As far as the English go, I know it's kind of weird nowadays for us to think in terms of them being the enemy, despite their uppity ways and horrendous taste in food, but for many Americans in 1825, this was the case. Hell, the United States had fought a revolution against Great Britain just 50 years prior, you know, just 11 short years before Jim tasted that salty water, the British burned Washington to the ground. So you can imagine there weren't all that many fond feelings. The American trappers with Weber and Bridger rode into the British camp flying the Stars and Stripes and began buying the pelts for more than Hudson's Bay was offering. After a few threats and boasts, the British boss man, guy named Peter Ogden, rode away intact, minus several hundred dollars worth of beaver plues and 23 men who deserted to join the Americans. Speaking of plues, you may be wondering to yourself how these fur trappers sold their product. I mean, there weren't exactly any buyers out there in the mountains other than them and getting all them hard-earned pelts all the way from the Rockies, across the Great Plains, and to the market in St. Louis was not just time-consuming, but dangerous as hell. What about all the supplies they'd need for another season? Gunpowder, tools, knives, traps, lead, trade goods. They'd have to haul all that back. This problem was solved in the summer of 1825 when Ashley took an overland caravan, consisting of 50 supply-laden pack mules, west. Setting up a camp on Henry's Fork of the Green River, near present-day McKinnon, Wyoming, for the first-ever mountain man's rendezvous. In other words, the market came to the mountains, allowing the fur trappers to stay out west and devote themselves to their profession year-round, without worrying about taking several months off to travel to St. Louis and back. By the way, Bridger and his men did have the largest haul out of all the Rocky Mountain fur that year, with over 3,000 pounds of beaver plues. Another, by the way. That first rendezvous was a somewhat tame affair, compared to the party that it would eventually become. 
There were only about 120 trappers in attendance in 1825, and I do not believe there was any alcohol present. Once business was handled, Jim Bridger was one of the men who guarded Ashley and his newly acquired beaver pelts on their way north to the Yellowstone River. The plan was to float the furs via bull boats to the Missouri, where a General Henry Atkinson and a bunch of paddle wheel powered keel boats awaited for the rest of the journey. I guess this was meant to be sort of a show of force for the Arikara. Be that as it may, they'd have to make it through Blackfeet country first. And sure enough, just like clockwork, Ashley Bridger and the rest were attacked, and the Blackfeet were successful in making off with all but two of their horses. Thankfully, the ever-faithful Jedediah Smith came to the rescue a couple of days later with more horses. That's when the Crow decided it was their turn to join in on the fun. Now, both the Crow and the Shoshone are two tribes often remembered as friends to the American fur trappers. And oftentimes that was true. As you'll soon hear on this series, Bridger dealt with both peoples extensively. He lived with both of them, traded with them, and in the case of the Shoshone, would eventually marry into them. That said, things didn't always go so smoothly. In this particular case, I was not able to ascertain a motive. Perhaps the crow were somehow provoked by the trespassing mountain men, or maybe they simply wanted all them horses that Jed Smith had just delivered. Whatever the case, they attacked. Hostilities were short-lived, however. The next day, both sides kissed and made up, and the crow ended up traveling with the fur trappers for the rest of the journey. Now, it was on this little sojourn that they came to a pass on the Bighorn River known as Bad Pass, in present-day southern Montana's Bighorn Canyon National Recreation Area. Ashley was thinking maybe this would be a shortcut that would allow them to float all the way to the Yellowstone, and young Bridger volunteered to scout it out and see what was on the other side. Sort of like he did with the Bear River. Only this time his vessel would be a quickly tossed together makeshift raft as opposed to a horse. And down the river Bridger went, through the treacherous canyon and over chute after chute of whitewater rapids before being belched out the other side. Thoroughly soaked, probably a little shaken, but still alive. Ashley figured that it probably would not be a great idea to float all them valuable pelts across those rapids, so the main party went ahead and took the roundabout trail. That summer, there was also a shift in power within the ranks of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Andrew Henry was out, opted to try his hand instead at lead mining. Ashley then offered the vacancy to Jedediah Smith, which he accepted, making him a partner in the company. Bridger's boss, John Henry Weber, didn't care for this decision and he quit in protest. Headed back to the settlements as William Sublet took his spot. Quick note on Weber. Utah's Weber River, Weber Canyon, Weber County, and even Weber State University are all named for this man. Now the spelling of his name is Weber, W-E-B-B-E-R, and Weber is how his modern descendants pronounce it. The German-born Weber, however, had a thick accent, and to the fur trappers when he said his name it sounded like a Weber. So Weber it was. Bill Sublet, born in 1798, was in his mid-20s, so just a few years older than Bridger, and it was under Sublet's command that Jim once again headed out to trap the Bear River and spend the freezing months near the Salt Lake that he helped discover. As the brigade settled in, it was business as usual. Each morning, the men would climb out of their robes and brave the ice-cold water as they set their traps, and during the day, they'd see to their pelts. There are so many other details that I wish I knew, though. Did they trap in pairs or small groups for safety? Did they sleep in shifts? Did they rotate hunting duties or was there a dedicated hunter? Were they all fleshing and stretching their own plues or was there a low man on the totem pole or maybe even at this point some indigenous women living with them doing the quote-unquote camp chores? I don't know. I do know that there was always danger. 
and Jim and the others would have to keep their eyes peeled, as evidenced by a visit from the Bannock that winter. The Raiders made off with 80 of the Rocky Mountain Fur Boys' horses, and Bridger, alongside his good friend and trapper-in-arms, Thomas Fitzpatrick, led a group in search of the thieves. This would be the first time either of these young men were recorded as taking on a leadership role within the company. Within a few days, they were able to locate the Bannock camp, and Bridger personally led some of the men on foot as Fitzpatrick and the remaining trappers opened up fire, allowing Jim and his bunch to stampede the herd and not only retrieve their horses, but several of the Bannock ponies as well. Jim Beckwith was allegedly along for this little raid, and he claimed they killed six Bannocks without a trapper so much as receiving a scratch. But then again, Beckwith was a notorious liar. Now, as far as I can tell, this area they were trapping in was mostly between the Great Salt Lake and Bear Lake, along the Bear and Cub Rivers in a place they called Willow Valley. Fun fact. Well, not so fun for those involved, but at one point, the trappers dug out a cache to store their pelts. They dug deep and wide and made a pretty sizable hole when all of a sudden it began rumbling and caved in, burying a trapper named Marshall inside. He was believed to be dead and, well, hell, he was already buried, so they just left him there and from thenceforth referred to Willow Valley as Cache Valley, which is how present-day Cache County, Utah, got its name. This mishap was quickly followed by another tragedy that nearly cost the friendship between the Mountaineers and their neighbors, the Shoshone, or the Snakes as the trappers called them. A young Shoshone was out hunting, wearing an antelope skin as a decoy, and got himself shot by one of the fur men who took him for a damn antelope. Worried that this would mean a war with the Shoshone, Bridger and the others quickly began packing up their gear with plans to vacate the area. One of the Shoshone chiefs noticed all the commotion and stopped by to ask why they were leaving. The trappers hemmed and hauled for a bit, but finally Fitzgerald confessed. He explained what had happened, and the chief merely shrugged it off. That's why you're worried you can stay. The leader further commented that the hunter was a fool to use such a decoy, especially knowing that white men shoot at all they see. In the end, the mountain men gave the Shoshone a scarlet cloth to wrap up the body in, and that was that. Crisis averted. The trappers would circumnavigate the Great Salt Lake in a skin canoe that year, looking for an outlet. And just an FYI, skin canoes are not the same thing as skin flutes. Before the men knew it, it was once more time for summer rendezvous, which, as luck would have it, would be held right there in Cache Valley. And this time they had whiskey. The unpacking of which, according to Jim Beckwith, quote, contributed not a little to the heightening of our festivities. The men would bring in even more furs that year, and Ashley formed a new partnership not only with Jed Smith, but David Jackson and William Sublett as well. They'd take over as operators of the company, with Ashley retaining his portion of the lucrative resupplying aspect of the business. Once trading was done and everybody drank they fill, it was time to go back to work. Old Jed Smith led a brigade of men west to trap and explore California, while Bridger joined Sublet and Jackson to go north to the beaver-rich land of the Blackfeet. And once again, Jim is moving up in the ranks. That season would find Bridger taking on a new responsibility, that of a brigade pilot, riding point as the men ventured deeper into the heart of Blackfeet country, staking their lives and their fortunes once more on beaver. And with that, we wrap up this first installment of the Jim Bridger series. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're enjoying diving into the life and times of Jim Bridger as much as I am. There will be five episodes all total in this series, with the next one coming at you bright and early next Wednesday morning. If you're the impatient sort or you just don't like advertisements, you can binge listen to the entire series right now on the Wild West Extravaganza Patreon. The next four episodes are available ad-free 
patreon.com forward slash Wild West Extra. Or head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that support button. Please do me a favor. Share the Wild West Extravaganza with other lovers of history. I know you're out there Facebooking. Just drop a link to your favorite episode, and I will love you forever. All right, shout out to everybody on Patreon. Shout out to everybody supporting the Wild West Extravaganza via Buy Me a Coffee. And shout out to you. Yeah, you. Don't forget to check out To Be a Rebel. And until next time, keep your powder dry, your carrot wet, and your buckskins greasy. Adios. I hope you know how to swim because you about to be drowning in beaver. <laughs>